Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. 28. This doesn't make any sense. I walk to the coffin room. I know exactly what I'm going to see, but I must be missing something. I have this wrong somehow, and so does Spingate. I enter. Two rows of six coffins, a well-trampled aisle of dust between them. At the end of the right-hand row, I see the broken lid of my coffin, sticking straight up into the air. This is impossible. We worked so hard. I walk to Brewer's coffin. The little corpse dressed in big clothes is still inside. The dried flesh flaked away from the skull right where Spingate touched it. A boy at my side, O'Malley. We walked in a straight line, he says. He doesn't sound mad anymore. He sounds stunned, like it's hit him as hard as it's hit me. We walked straight so we wouldn't get lost. Doing so was my decision, mine. I don't understand what happened. The hope we felt in the garden, it's gone. I feel numb again. I did something wrong, I say. I, I don't know what happened. I tried to get us out. I tried, and all I did was bring us back to the same spot. Young is dead. So is Latu. I lost Bello. No, I left Bello. I ran away so we could wind up right back where we started. We're never going to get out of this place. We will all die here. O'Malley puts his hand on my shoulder. I know he's trying to be nice, but it feels awkward. He senses it too, takes his hand away. Em, Bello wasn't your fault. I look at him, those blue eyes, the shape of his face. How did he know I was thinking about Bello? I wish O'Malley and I were somewhere else, together, the two of us, some place without the fear and the confusion. Not your fault, he says again. I'm sorry I yelled at you. I wasn't in the woods. I didn't see what you saw. If you say we had to run, I know you had a good reason. The good reason? I was afraid. That was the good reason. O'Malley is sincere, but his sincerity doesn't change anything. Reality is what it is. I was voted the leader. Everyone did what I told them to do, and we wound up here. O'Malley is wrong. This is my fault. I don't want this stupid spear. I rest the butt in the dust. The blade, the blood on it tacky and half-dried, points to the carved ceiling. I could let go of it, just let it fall. Someone else should carry it for a while. Gentle fingertips caress my temple. It stings, but not because of O'Malley's touch. You're hurt, he says. I reach up and feel the spot, a lump from when the monster slammed me against the tree. It's sticky there, and also down my cheek, my neck. I crane my head to look at my shoulder. Spots of blood dot the white fabric. I'm clean no longer. O'Malley touches my arm. The contact makes my skin break out in goosebumps. Your arm is hurt too, he says. Did the monster grab you? Four parallel red lines mark the skin there, 
obviously the shape of fingers gripping far too hard. Yes, I lie. The monster grabbed me. It was Bishop, his crushing strength, but he didn't do it on purpose. I don't want to give O'Malley a reason to hate Bishop even more than he already does. O'Malley's fingertips reach out again, trace a warm line down my cheek. This time, his touch doesn't seem awkward. It seems right. Everything fades away, everything but O'Malley's eyes, the feel of his skin on mine. We'll figure out what's going on, he says softly. You can't know everything. What's happening here is crazy, I know. But you're the best leader for us. The people follow you, Em. I answer him in a whisper. But why? Why do they follow me? I have no idea what I'm doing. He shrugs. Because there's something about you. And no matter what's happened so far, it's better to have you as the leader than Bishop. You saw how he knocked me down. You saw Gaston's eye, Latu's cheek. I nod. I'm glad I didn't say it was Bishop who bruised my arm. O'Malley is right, though. Bishop has a history of hurting people. But then I remember what Bishop said in the hallway. When I yelled for him, he plunged headfirst toward unknown danger. O'Malley did not. O'Malley stayed with the others. He didn't come after me. My opinion of the two boys seems to waver based on which one I'm talking to. That's not how things should work. Maybe you're wrong, I say. Maybe Bishop could be a good leader. O'Malley huffs. He's a bully. He throws his weight around. He intimidates. If he winds up in charge, it's dangerous for all of us. You're a good leader, M. Bishop acts. You think. I gesture to the room. I'm a good leader because I think? Look around, O'Malley. Look where my thinking got us. I want to trust in what O'Malley says. He's helped me make hard decisions. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have won the vote. But the fact that we are back where we started makes it clear. When it comes to his confidence in my leadership, O'Malley is plain wrong. Another boy pops into my thoughts, young this time. The look on his face when I stabbed him and what he said right before he attacked me. You tried, Em, but you failed. Maybe he was right. I open my hand and let the spear fall away. It drops like a cut tree, slowly at first, then picking up speed before smacking into the aisle and kicking up a long puff of dust. I had my turn, I say. Let someone else have theirs. O'Malley shakes his head. You can't quit now. We need you. I'll help. When you're in doubt about something, anything, you pull me aside and we'll figure it out together. He should hate me right now. I'm sure the others do. I somehow led us in a circle. Yet he says that's not my fault. Maybe there's a good reason he didn't come help me in the woods. Maybe he thought someone had to stay with the group, keep them together, keep them safe. The things he's saying right now, the intensity of his quiet voice, O'Malley believes in me. Maybe he's the only one who does. He's so close I can smell him. I shut my eyes, feel heat pouring off his body. I have never felt like this before. I can't remember much, but I know that I have never been kissed. I want O'Malley to kiss me. Someone rushes into the coffin room. I quickly lean away from O'Malley, 
like I've been caught doing something wrong. It's Spingate. Em, I know what happened. Tears still gleam on her cheeks, yet she is wild-eyed with excitement. I know how we wound up back here. Raise the spear, Em. Bring everyone in and I'll explain. She finds an area with undisturbed dust, kneels and starts drawing lines with her finger. What is she doing? What is she going to say to everyone? I look at O'Malley. He picks up the spear. He brushes dust off of it, then offers the spear to me. We don't just need a leader, M, he says. We need you. I have no faith in myself, but for now, maybe I can rely on his faith in me. My fingers curl around the spear. I lift it slightly. It feels heavier than it did before. I walk into the hall. All heads turn my way. Some people glare with open anger. Some look at me with hope, with expectation. They still think I can guide them out of this place. I raise the spear. Come into the coffin room, I say. We'll figure out what to do next. Elsafani, stay out in the hall. Yell if anyone comes. Elsafani nods. People filter into the room, but Bishop lags behind. He walks to a skeleton. He reaches down and picks up a thick thigh bone. He grips it in both hands, gives it an experimental swing. Then he raises it above his head and he whips it down. It smashes against the skull with the triangular hole, shattering it, sending shards of bone skittering across the hall. A piece of what used to be a person is now a weapon. Bishop shows the thigh bone to Elsafani, gives a single firm nod. The twins nod in return. They grab thigh bones of their own. Without a word, they take up positions on either side of our coffin room door. Bishop is different. Killing the monster affected him. He looks so solemn, so serious. That little boy's smile is nowhere to be seen. And on his face, for the first time, I see a faint hint of stubble. Bishop isn't a kid anymore. I enter the coffin room. 29. Spingate draws pictures in the dust. She uses her fingertip to make a line or a curve, then stops to think. When she does, she touches her face, leaving smudges and broken lines on her skin. We all stand and watch. No one knows what to say about the magic that brought us back to where we started. We went straight. We didn't turn left. We didn't turn right. There were no bends in either direction, not even subtle ones, or we would have seen them when we looked far down the hallway. Even when we were walking in the dark, it was still straight. Minutes pass. There are 20 people in this room, sitting in the floor, leaning on coffins. Everyone waits. Spingate stares into space. She doesn't seem to realize that we're there. Bishop leans toward her, over her, but he's not looking at the drawings. He's looking at her face. A blast of anger wrinkles my nose and narrows my eyes. Does Bishop think Spingate is pretty? Her red hair, her long legs, her shirt tight against her woman's body? There's no way I'm as pretty as she is. I rub up my eyes. Why would I worry about that now? My thoughts keep running away from me. Bella was gone, and there are monsters. I don't care who Bishop looks at. He spits on his index and middle fingers. He kneels, dips them into the dust. He drags his fingertips first down one side of his face, then the other. Bishop stands. He has two lines of wet, dark gray dust running down each cheek. 
His eyes are cold and hard. He walks to the archway, bone clutched in his hand like a club. He leans out and quietly says something to Elsefani. I know Bishop saved me from the monsters, but right now, he's making me nervous. The look on his face, the sharpness of his movements, he is scary. Spingate draws another line. She had me call everyone in here because she said she knew how we wound up at the same pile of bones. Her silence makes the room heavy and awkward. A few heads turn my way, then a few more. People are waiting for me to speak. But it is Aramovsky who finally breaks the silence. Tell us what happened, M, he says. Tell us what happened to Bello. Tell us about the monsters. Now everyone is looking at me. Everyone except Spingate, who seems to have forgotten that any of us exist. I take a breath. I didn't tell them before because I didn't want them to panic. They did what I asked them to do. Now these people, my people, deserve to know what happened. I start talking. I tell as much of it as I can recall. The whole thing was a blur of movement and noise, of shapes and emotions. I tell them how Bello and I walked into the woods. I tell them why we went, no longer caring that I'm supposed to be embarrassed at how my body works. I tell them how she was taken, dragged through the underbrush. I tell them how I went after her. Then I describe the monsters, two of them, one tall, one about my height, wrinkled and black, not dark brown, not white or tan or pink or any of the skin colors in this room, but black like my hair, as black as rot. Spindly arms and legs, hands like skinny spiders, red things that might be eyes, hissing voices, voices that made my nerves shudder. But I don't tell everyone how the woman's voice sounded strangely familiar. That part I keep to myself, I'm not sure why. I tell them about the bracelet that might have been a weapon, and when I do, my stomach flops. Damn it, whatever that thing was, we should have taken it off the corpse. Now it's too late. As I tell the people what I saw, I see their fear swell. Our bodies are grown, but our hearts and minds are still those of 12-year-old kids. I'm telling them that not only is the boogeyman real, he took one of our own. But those boogeymen can die. I tell them how Bishop killed one. Brave Bishop drove the spear into a monster's heart. The intensity of my words hides neither my admiration for Bishop nor my hatred for the creatures. Gaston raises a hand. He has a question. I almost laugh. I'm standing here lecturing while wide-eyed children wearing adult masks listen to me like I am their teacher. I nod to him. You said the monsters talked, he says. Tell us what they said. I try to remember. So much happened all at once. I was furious and terrified. The little one said, take her. I remember that part. But the rest, I'm sorry, I'm not sure. Gaston scratches at his ear, thinking. I don't doubt what you tell us, he says. I don't know that they were monsters, but whatever they are, they're down here with us. If we can learn something about them, it could be important. So try to remember. Did they say anything else? Anything at all? He wants me to remember more, but I don't want to remember any of it. It was such a blur. That cold hand on my wrist, pulling me. They got bellow. They almost got me. My body starts to shiver. I don't want to think about that anymore. I don't. And yet, 
I do recall something else. The one Bishop killed, after Bishop stabbed it, it said, I gave up everything. A murmur rolls through the crowd. Gaston waits for me to say more. When I don't, he holds up his hands annoyed. That's it? What does that mean, M? I shake my head. How would I know what that thing meant? Wait, the tall one said something else. What was it? My shivering stops. My breathing stops. Maybe my heart stops. I know what it said. You always were a bitch, Savage. It knew my name. If it thought I was a bitch, it knew more than just my name. It knew me. That monster knew the person I was before the coffin stripped away my memories, before it erased my life. And now that monster is dead. But there are more of them, the little one at least, and I didn't see how many actually took Bellow. The monsters might know who I am. If I can find them, I can make them tell me. This is important information. I should share it, but I stay silent, like I did about the familiarity of the little monster's voice. There is something lurking in the muddy parts of my brain, something beyond a simple memory or two. When I think of discovering my past, an emotion overwhelms me. Horror. Who am I really? What have I done? And do I actually want to find out? Spingate finally stands. Her face is so smudged, she looks ridiculous. A circle, she says, satisfied and proud. We walked in a circle. Her comment is random and jarring. A circle? What is she talking about? We walked straight. Aramovsky steps towards Spingate. He smooths his hands down his white shirt before he speaks, as if wrinkles might get in the way of words. We didn't turn, he says. To walk in a circle, we would have to turn right or left. Don't you know that? Spingate points to the ceiling. Remember how it felt like we were constantly walking uphill? She scans the floor, looking for an untouched patch of dust among the hundreds of footprints. She finds a spot next to a coffin that holds the dried up corpse of someone who was once named N. Okadigbo. Spingate kneels, draws a new circle. Inside that circle on the bottom, she draws something I recognize instantly, a stick figure of a person. Spingate puts her finger to the left of that figure, then slowly slides it through the dust, following the circle's inner curve. We did walk in a circle, she says. That circle was beneath our feet. The floor kept curving up, but the circle is big, really big. We didn't understand what was going on. She makes a new drawing, an oval. From the top and bottom of the oval, she draws two straight parallel lines leading off to the right. She then connects the ends of those lines with a curve that itself runs parallel to the oval. It's a cylinder. Inside the cylinder, she draws another tiny stick figure, this one standing on the bottom straight line. I realize what she's saying. I hear people murmuring to each other as they realize it too. Spingate thinks we walked up that curve, gradually looping around until we returned to where we began. We did walk straight, and we are here, so the picture makes sense, kind of. But if we walked up the cylinder wall, why didn't we fall back down? I start to ask her, then stop myself. I've made enough mistakes already. If I ask a stupid question, everyone might think I'm too dumb to lead. 
Spingate wipes her sleeve across her face, removing some of the dust and smearing the rest into long gray streaks. The scale is wrong, though, she says. The stick figure is way too big for what I drew. I think I could figure out how big the cylinder is. I need to do the math, do some, ah, what's it called? Oh, I remember now. I need to do some geometry. This word pleases her. Or perhaps she's just thrilled that she remembers something. Maybe our past isn't erased. Maybe it's hidden away from us. Gaston steps forward, pushing people out of the way more than sliding around them as he usually does. Stunned, he stares down at the image in the dust. He then looks up at Spingate. Amazing, he says. You are amazing. Spingate's proud smile blazes. O'Malley shakes his head, trying to understand. But how come when we got to the top, we didn't fall on our heads? I smile a little. I kept that question to myself, yet he has no problem asking it out loud. Spingate stares at the cylinder. She seems frustrated, as if she knows all the parts of the answer, but can't quite put them together. Aramovsky fills the silence. It's obvious, he says. The gods don't want us to fall down, so they make our feet stick. My smile fades. He's going to talk about this nonsense again? Now? I'm surprised to see many heads nodding, agreeing with him. To them, it isn't nonsense at all. The word gods made eyes widen, made people stand up straight. But why should I dismiss what he says without considering it? We didn't think monsters existed. I've seen one. I didn't think gods existed either. Can I say they don't? Gaston starts to laugh. Everyone stares at him. He looks around, surprised no one else finds it funny. His laugh dies. There are no gods, he says. He doesn't sound very convinced. Aramovsky points to the dust drawing. No gods? Look at that. What else could keep us from falling, Gaston? I can't jump up and stand on the ceiling, can I? No. I would fall back down. It has to be magic. It has to be the work of the gods. Gaston shakes his head. You're wrong. It's got something to do with the size of the cylinder. He looks down at the drawing. I, I can't quite remember, but I think the reason you don't fall is that you're not actually standing on the ceiling. Aramovsky shrugs. According to Spingate's drawing, standing on the ceiling is exactly what we did. Are you saying Spingate is a liar? Gaston's head snaps up like someone slapped him. No, of course not. So we did walk on the ceiling, Aramovsky says. If it wasn't the gods that kept us from falling, how could such a thing be possible? Gaston glares. He doesn't like Bishop. He doesn't like O'Malley but he despises Aramovsky. The taller boy crosses his arms. Well, Gaston, we're waiting. Gaston glances at the drawing, then back again. Just because I can't answer your question doesn't mean gods are real, he says. Aramovsky's smug smile shows he doesn't feel the same. You should watch your mouth, Gaston, he says. You shouldn't say the gods aren't real. Gaston's eyes narrow in anger. And why is that? Aramovsky looks around the room as he answers, making sure that everyone sees his face, feels his confidence. Because, 
Saying the gods aren't real makes them angry. And when the gods are angry, the gods punish. They send pigs to kill Latu. They send monsters to take Bellow. Fury wells up in me. I told him not to talk about that. I warned him. Aramovsky, I say, you need to shut. A booming voice cuts me off. The gods aren't angry. They're testing us. Everyone looks to the door. Bishop stands there, his face completely covered with wet, dark gray dust. He doesn't look like a person anymore. He looks, he looks like a monster himself. The whites of his wide eyes blaze brightly. Maybe we did something wrong, he says. Maybe the gods are testing us to see if we're worthy. We will show them that we are by going to the garden and taking Bello back. That stops Aramovsky cold. When he speaks again, his voice is calm, soft. He's being careful of what he says to the hulking man with a face covered in dust and spit, and I can't blame him. The gods wanted Bellow. The gods took Bellow, Aramovsky says. It is not our place to try and take her back. Do you want more of us to be taken? Bishop's upper lip twists into a fluttering snarl. I killed one of them, he says. Maybe the gods sent the monsters, but the gods don't protect them. We are stronger than the monsters, and faster. If they try to take more of us, then we will kill more of them. We need to go after Bello right now. Farrar bangs a fist against his solid chest. Bodden lets out a bark of support for Bishop's words. The circle stars adore Bishop, are ready to follow him to the garden. I thought the circle stars accepted me as the leader, but maybe that was only because Bishop did. If he goes to the garden without my say-so, will they still follow me, or will they follow him? O'Malley stands up on a closed coffin. He holds the knife at his side. Strength and speed don't matter, he says, loud enough to be heard over the circle star's grunts of excitement. Bishop sneers. What do you know, coward? You haven't even seen one. The insult hits home. O'Malley's jaws clench tight. He points the knife at Bishop. You think I'm a coward? Come and find out if you're right. Bishop doesn't hesitate. He raises his thigh bone and strides toward O'Malley. I slam the spear shaft against a coffin lid. The sound echoes sharply off the stone walls, makes everyone jump, makes Bishop stop. These boys are going to tear each other apart if I don't do something. That's enough. You, I point the spear at Gaston, will stop insulting everyone. And you, I pointed at Bishop, will stop puffing up your chest every time someone says something you don't like. And you, I point the spear at O'Malley, will stop pulling that knife or I will take it away. And you, I pointed at Aramovsky, will stop talking about gods and magic and other such foolishness. When the echo of my words dies down, there is no noise. No one speaks. O'Malley stays quiet. My rant doesn't seem to have bothered him. He lowers the knife. Bishop looks down at the floor. So does Gaston. Aramovsky stares straight at me, his nostrils flaring. We are in a magic prison, he says quietly. Monsters have taken Bellow. I will keep quiet for now. But if you think that what we have seen is foolishness, then you do not believe what your own eyes show you. Spingate and the others watch the five of us, waiting to see what happens next. Bishop is all emotion. He wants to rush off without thinking, without making a plan. 
His passion is contagious, but I can't let it sway me. We have lost three people. I can't bear to lose any more. O'Malley is the opposite of Bishop. He always seems to think things through. I need his opinion. I saw Bishop kill the monster, I say. He's right, O'Malley. Our circle stars are faster and stronger. So why do you say strength and speed don't matter? Because of the bracelet, he says. If it was going to shoot you with it, that means they can hit us from a distance. Now that we've killed one of theirs, I doubt if they'll let us get close again. Strength and speed don't matter if the monsters can shoot us before we get near them. Damn, is he smart. That didn't occur to me. We don't know what the bracelets do, but we have to assume whatever they shoot can hurt us, maybe kill us. O'Malley is right. Bishop doesn't give up. Then we stay quiet and hidden, he says. We slip into the garden, sneak into the woods, and we find Bello. He's desperate to go after her. He's ashamed he left her behind. So am I, but I can see it's worse for him. It's tearing him apart. I want to save her too, or at least find out if she's dead. But if those bracelets really are weapons, we... Wait a second. Gaston's story about the haunted room with the three unbroken pillars. Bishop, the spear, I say. You found it stuck in a body. Gaston said that body had something on its arm. Gaston, what did you call it? A shackle, Gaston says. His eyebrows rise. He looks at Bishop. The monster's bracelet. Was it the same thing we saw in that body? Bishop thinks, then nods. Yes, I should have thought of that, but when I saw that thing attacking M, I, well, I should have thought of that. My thoughts race. But this time it isn't about boys or who wants to lead. It isn't about who is the prettiest. It's about staying alive. We walked in a circle. It doesn't matter if that was because of magic or gods or by some means Spingate can't quite explain. What matters is we wound up back where we started. As far as we know, there is no way out. We could be here for a long time. If we are to survive, we need food and water. And there's one place we know that has those things. The garden, where the monsters are. Monsters who might have weapons that we don't. We're going to the haunted room, I say. We need to find that bracelet. I'll go. Bishop, you come with me, and we'll bring- No! The word is a roar. His gray face clouds over. We go after Bello, and we go now! The room is silent. Bishop stares at me. I stare back at him. The bracelet in that room could be a weapon, I say. It's important. I see the pain and conflict in his eyes. I ordered us to run away, yes. But doing so was his idea before it was mine, and he knows it. He feels responsible. Bello is more important, he says. They could be killing her right now. We can't wait. We'll beat the monsters, M. Lead us to the garden. To everyone else, I know he sounds strong and confident, but his face, his eyes, he is pleading with me. He wants to fight. If the monsters have weapons that we don't, we will lose. I'm suddenly so grateful O'Malley talked me out of quitting. We don't understand how we wound up back here, but that doesn't mean walking straight was the wrong choice. I did the right thing. I did the smart thing. I kept us together. O'Malley said it best. Bishop acts, I think. And as badly as Bishop wants to redeem himself, I can't let him, not yet. 
This isn't only about Bello anymore, I say. It's about all of us. We need to survive. I'm going to the haunted room, Bishop, and you will take me there. We need to go with strength, but we also need to protect the people who will stay here. So, who goes with us and who guards this room? Our stare down continues. We are on the edge of coming apart, of the group splitting in two. That smile Bishop gave me back in the garden, I doubt I will ever see it again. Right now, he hates me. He can hate all he wants, as long as he does what I need him to do. Finally, the stare breaks. Bishop looks around the room. Elsafani comes with Em and me, he says, and Visca and Bodin. The tension in the room eases slightly, but it's not gone. The others are glancing my way. They think we should go after Bello. They are angry we left her behind. I led those people in a circle, so I can't fault them for doubting my decisions. Bishop points his club in turn at two circle stars. Farrar, Coyotal, you guard this room. To my surprise, he then points at two more people. Okereke, Smith, you help Farrar and Coyotal. Okereke and Smith are surprised to be chosen for this duty, honored to be recognized by the biggest of us all. They aren't circle stars, but I understand Bishop's choice. Okereke is strong and has an air about him that makes him lean toward danger rather than shy away from it. Tall, skinny Smith moves with grace and speed. She never stumbles or falters. Maybe she's a fighter as well as a healer. Bishop then points the club at Gaston. And you, Bishop says, the door to the haunted room only open for you, so you've got to come. Gaston puts his hands in his face. Crap, I forgot about that. Spingate shakes her head. Gaston shouldn't go. He's too little. There are monsters now, and I'm not too little, Gaston snaps. They can't get in if I don't go. She shakes her head again, harder this time. She holds up the scepter. They can take this, I don't care. I'll show them how it works. It didn't open with a scepter, Gaston says, his voice kinder now. It opened for me. If I don't go with the group, there's no point in them going at all. Spingate looks like she's fighting back tears. I can tell she has a hundred questions about how the door works, why someone else can't open it. But Gaston's face is set. He's going. Spin, we need him, I say. Bishop will make sure he stays safe. She looks at the gray-faced boy. You better. Bishop nods once. I'll go as well, O'Malley says. His tone is hopeful, but not as firm as Gaston's. I think O'Malley already knows what he's going to hear. I need you to stay, I say. You'll be in charge while we're gone. Aramovsky huffs. Really? Yet another terrible idea, Em. O'Malley, do you believe in the gods? O'Malley shakes his head. There's no such thing. Aramovsky looks around the room, spreads his hands as if to say, there, you see? Em wants someone who thinks the gods don't exist to be in charge, he says, playing to the crowd. Do you think the gods are going to like that? I don't. I should be in charge while she's gone. Wouldn't you all agree? Some heads shake, but most nod. A wave of fury wells up in my chest. He wants to take leadership away from me. I wonder what it would feel like to shove the spear point into Aramovsky's throat. If he contradicts me again, I could kill him just like I killed Yong. No, 
Young was an accident. I didn't kill him. He ran into the knife. That's what happened. Isn't it? I give my head a hard shake, clear my thoughts. Yes, Young was an accident. I'm not going to kill Aramovsky for speaking his mind. That's crazy. I think back to the garden, to Aramovsky standing tall. People sat around him, watched him reverently, listened to his words. What was he saying to them? And more importantly, what will he say while I'm gone? Bishop is in danger of splitting the group, but I don't think he means it or even knows he's doing it. Aramovsky, on the other hand, knows exactly what he's doing. So it's best not to let him do it. You can't be in charge here, Aramovsky, because you're coming with me. He's surprised. He wasn't expecting that. But I would be no help in a fight, he says. It makes no sense for me to go. You seem to know religion better than the rest of us, I say. What if we run into something we don't understand and we do the wrong thing? We might accidentally anger the gods if you're not there to give us guidance. When he first spoke of gods and magic, many heads nodded. Those same heads nod again. They believe in him, think it makes sense for him to come along on this important mission. Aramovsky's eyes harden. He knows I've used his words against him. If he doesn't go now, he's basically telling everyone he doesn't give a damn about his gods. Fine, he says, and forces a smile. I'll do my part. And let's not waste another second, I say, and walk to the door. We move out, the eight of us, Bishop, Elsafani, Baudin, Visca, Aramovsky, Gaston, and me. I'm trying to do the smart thing, but the truth is, I'm acting on a hunch. The bracelet might be a weapon, might let us take the garden and hold it against monsters or any other threat. Hunch or no hunch? I've made my decision, and if I'm wrong, I know it will be the last decision I get to make. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler. S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.